Stop, stop, stop. That's that's huge. What you yeah, just said is 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 huge. And and, right. and I don't know why it's not plastered on the front page of the New York Times for a week straight. And I don't know why it's not the lead story on CNN every single day. There's no story that Americans are more concerned about. The global economy is concerned about it. Uh, everyone who has to pay uh, heating uh, fuel is concerned about it all over the world. And you're, you just said this thing could have ended with Putin and Zelensky sitting down and coming up with some kind of truce where maybe Russia kept, I don't know, Donsk or whatever the hell, and, uh, and, and both sides could walk away. And the West, in the form of the former prime minister of uh, Great Britain, stepped in and said, no, 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 no. We don't want peace. We want you to keep fighting. That's right. crazy. That's crazy, crazy what you just said. And it's crazy that it's not a huge news story. It really is crazy. We found this out. It was a Ukrainian newspaper that revealed this. And then an actual kind of Russian hawk, Fiona Hill, who worked for the Obama for Obama, she revealed um, in uh, recently that they were close to the deal. There is no story that has more overwhelmed Americans than the situation between Russia and Ukraine. It's like you can't turn your TV on without getting some kind of coverage on it on the news. It's a headline in all the newspapers. But the information is so scattershot. And it's also delivered in such a way so that I can just tell there's an obvious bias. Maybe it's because I'm Latino. You know, when we're Latinos, we, we, if you come from any country in Latin America, trust me, you understand what happens when one country exercises its force on another country. Because we saw it. I mean, we, it happened with Allende in Chile. It happened in Cuba. It happened in Guatemala. It happened in Panama. It happened in the Dominican Republic. I mean, you can write a book. It's just like boom, 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 country after country after country. We've seen it. And, and most of the time, not always, but most of the time, it's been our own country. This, this place we love dearly, the United States of America, has, has been the country that has been involved in that kind of thing. So now we as Latinos watch this thing in Ukraine, and unlike so many other Americans who are looking at this and saying, oh, okay, Ukraine is great, Russia's bad. You know, and they're hiding, they're, you know, you go around and you see everybody's got a Ukrainian flag in front of their house. <laughs> Most of them don't even know what the hell Ukraine is. They couldn't find Ukraine on a map. And yet all of a sudden, the news just hits us and we're like, you know, buying into something. And I just, look, it's not about taking sides here. It's about trying to understand the skinny of this, right? We've been talking about doing a podcast on this for uh, quite some time. To, you know, I'm sure if you listen to Russian media, they were about to be invaded by Ukraine and they had to defend the motherland, et cetera, et cetera. If you listen to U.S. media or uh, British media, Western media, you know, uh, it's the worst situation in the world. They, you know, Russia invaded some poor, helpless country and they were all sitting around baking bread and singing Kumbaya at the time of the invasion. And they, these people have never done anything wrong. So what's the truth? What's the truth? What the hell really is going on here? And why are we getting so much information and so much of it contradictory? I find myself going to like India to get information about Ukraine because somehow I have the feeling that they're kind of like not so in the middle. I mean, not, not so tied to one side and more in the middle, I should say. But uh, there's something else I wanted to do on this day. There's somebody I trust because I've known her for a while. I've interviewed her in the past. And I think that she has a better understanding of U.S. foreign policy, both from a policy standpoint, from a journalistic standpoint, and from a cultural standpoint, than most of the other journalists out there. 
Um, it's a, it's a matter of trust. You know, we're all imperfect, but I, she, she tends to be able to explain foreign policy in ways that I think is more copacetic, easier to understand for us. So I've asked her to join us. It's uh, Katie Halper. You know, uh, Katie is the host of, she knows a lot about this podcast stuff, so she'll be a pro on here. She knows more about podcasts than I do. She's the host of the Katie Halper Show, which is a fantastic podcast, and uh, where she talks about these kinds of things regularly. And she's also a co-host of Useful Idiots, which is one of the best podcasts, which I think, Katie, that one's with, uh, who is that with Matt Taibbi? Or who do you do that with? Yeah, I founded it with, co-founded it with Matt Taibbi. And then uh, he's the co-host. He's now on book leave. So Aaron Mate has been filling in while Matt's... Uh, on book leave. Yeah, that's great. So now I host it with Aaron Mate. Yeah. Um, They're both great. So how you doing, kiddo? What's up? I hear there's some news in your life. Oh, yeah. I was I was uh, censored and fired, not surprisingly. Um, <laughs> Welcome yeah, to the club. I, I know. Fired. Thank you. I feel now like I, I really can trust you. I had my bat mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I made the mistake of criticizing Israel in a monologue. I laid out why it was an apartheid government. Uh-huh. And um, I was at the doing that while I was hosting at the Hill. I've been appearing on the Hill as a guest for three years. And then I also did some um, hosting. And while I was hosting, they do these things called radars, which are basically monologues straight to the camera. So I did one of those. I defended Rashida Tlaib, who had said that it's becoming more and more obvious that you can't be progressive while supporting the uh, apartheid government of Israel. She got smeared. Um, you know, the ADL went after her, Jonathan Greenblatt. I, uh, lots of people were calling her an anti-Semite. Uh, Chuck Tapper did a segment on her and I defended her and also pointed out that like it or not, Israel is, Israel's government is an apartheid government. So I recorded that monologue. Then they said they weren't going to run it, which is not something that happens at the Hill with these monologues. Like no, there's really no editorial process and that's not an insult. It's just that it doesn't go into it. You literally email your monologue and they put it into the teleprompter and then you read it the next day. So I did that. They recorded it and then they told me they weren't going to release it. And I pushed back on that, tried to get it at least if they weren't going to release it, then I wanted to be able to talk about it during my guest appearance as a as a discussion, because the what the producers told me is that they didn't know this. But apparently there's a policy at the Hill where you can't do written or video op-eds on Israel. Mm. So I was trying to see if I could then just talk about wait, it during wait, the Wait, wait, wait. What did you just say? There, there's yeah. a policy where you can't talk about Israeli foreign policy? You can't do op-eds that are written or video. So what they told me, the producers... Why, 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 why not? You should be able to do an op-ed about any course, government anywhere in the world, right? Huh? Yes, of course. Especially at a show at the Hill, which... Uh, like rising at the Hill, which prides itself on being at least allegedly a place where you can talk about things that the rest of corporate media won't uh, permit you to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but sadly, it seems like that's just more of a monetary scheme. They realized it was profitable than an actual principle. Mm. So I was told that I couldn't um, do a, an op-ed on it, but I could do a segment on it, meaning I could talk about it as a guest. I just couldn't do the straight to cam monologue. So when I asked about doing it as a segment after I got a call from the editor in chief telling me they weren't going to run the monologue as a video, uh, I then asked the producers, so can I do it as a segment as my weekly appearance? 
And then I was told to check my email. And that's when I saw an email from a Nexstar uh, and an executive at, at Nexstar and at the Hill, because Nexstar is a huge media corporation that just bought the Hill. Right. Um, I was told I wasn't needed. I didn't need to appear. Uh, but let's, my- but let, let's do this. Let's while we're on this subject, because I find it somewhat interesting. Uh, in your past employment, I understand they fired you. You would have been able to do an editorial on how evil Russia is, right? Oh, sure. Well, to be fair, they were actually okay. No, I'm just to saying be- they would have let yeah, you yeah, do yeah. that. You would not yeah, have been fired for also, doing that. Yeah, they wouldn't. No, I don't and, think and, so. And I you mean, also would have been able, and you would have been able to do that on China as well, right? Well, I, yes, and I've been critical. I mean, I to the Hill's credit, at least do no, no. When I was doing segments, not this was the first monologue I had done. Because I had done hosting in the past, but I wanted to make sure I was able to, you know, get my bearings as a host. And then I finally did a a, a, a radar this time. It was my yeah. First and time and doing by you, it. when you say monologue, it's it's more of like a it, it's more of an editorial. It's your take. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's my take, and it's straight to the camera. Now I would appear and give my take every week as a guest, but I but, guess and that's you and different. you could, by the way, and and I'm just 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 to help the audience understand what we're talking about here, you know we have generally a Latino audience, you would have been allowed to do an editorial on critical of U.S. foreign policy and nobody would have gotten mad at you or fired you, right? In theory, yeah, I think so, right. And you probably- and I, was, I was even allowed to, I had criticized Israel on the show before. That's what's kind of interesting. I had criticized it as a guest on the show. But, I said that they lied about killing Shireen Abu Akleh, which they did. Uh-huh. Um, but there's a new. And when Saudi star- Arabia uh, murdered the Washington Post uh, right. reporter and I'm chopped sure, him into totally, pieces, yeah. you were allowed to criticize them and they wouldn't have fired you, even though it's going to hurt us. I don't economic. think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I can't say for sure because I never so, did that. But so I don't th- think this is what I'm getting to. I mean, I, I don't have a dog in this fight, you know, uh, and I, right. there are some great things, obviously, I'm Jewish, about Israel. By the way, which makes it. And you, yeah, you're Jewish. Which, Right. So it's not yeah, like they can say it, at least I get called a self-loathing Jew instead of an anti-Semite. But my what I go through <laughs> in the video is that like, uh, right. you know, it is a it's an apartheid government, whether or not you like it. And I understand a lot of people don't want to look at that. But all I did in my video was I quoted international the, the United Nations because apartheid is actually a defined crime. So I quote the United Nations, International Criminal Court, Israeli laws. I quote, I cite human rights organizations. I quote an Israeli human rights organization called B'Tselem. Um, Then I quoted a bunch of Israeli officials, ministers, prime ministers, all of whom said uh, apartheid either existed or was going to, or was around the corner, basically. Yeah. And then I quoted Nelson Mandela and um, uh, Desmond Tutu and a also current day, present day uh, minister from South Africa, all of whom were saying basically it's an apartheid government. And um, Hmm. yeah, you can say it in Israel, but you can't say it here. Which leads us to the conversation that I wanted to have with you today, because it does seem like as an American consumer of news, um, it's difficult to parse through what's real and what's bullshit and what the media whatever the hell that is, but let's just call it, you know, cable news, newspaper, network news, that kind of stuff, um, to, to understand whether they're telling me what the real skinny is or whether they're telling me something that they are conflicted to have to tell. Um, and we, we start with, for example, this Ukraine-Russia situation. Um, 
it's hard to parse through the information. I'll tell you, Democrats in general are calling this, it's very simple to them, Putin is Hitler, Ukraine is euphoria, a perfect people and a perfect nation. To hear some Republicans uh, tell it, um, he's bad, Putin. Nobody's saying Putin's a great guy. But Ukraine is worse, and we shouldn't take sides in this fight. So two different perspectives from two different general parties in the United States. The media tends to tell, it seems to me, only the Democrat story. Am I reading it right? No, I think that's true. I think that the big narrative, first of all, the narrative that Hit, that Putin is Hitler is just so scary and so ahistorical, and there's just no evidence for it. And of course, the reason people like that narrative is because then they can point to that and say, and therefore we can't negotiate with him because you can't negotiate with a Hitler. And then if you do negotiate with a Hitler, it's appeasement huh. um, and capitulation. So that's why it's it's useful for people who want this war to continue. And I think the biggest problem is that uh, that the United States and the West and the um, political elites, as well as the media elites, and of course the arms industry are all really interested in extending this war. They have no interest in ending it. They haven't used any of their potential pressure, the United States, to uh, encourage diplomacy or negotiation. In fact, we know um, that is that uh, whoops that Russia and Ukraine were close to a deal. And then Boris Johnson, and obviously Boris Johnson doesn't do anything without the permission of the United States. Correct. Then uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson went to Ukraine and told Zelensky not to negotiate with Putin. And there was, we know, they were close to a deal. Stop, because stop, stop. That's that's huge. What you yeah, just said is 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 huge. And and, right. and I don't know why it's not plastered on the front page of the New York Times for a week straight. And I don't know why it's not the lead story on CNN every single day. There's no story that Americans are more concerned about. The global economy is concerned about it. Uh, everyone who has to pay uh, heating uh, fuel is concerned about it all over the world. And you're, you just said this thing could have ended with P Putin and Zelensky sitting down and coming up with some kind of truce where maybe Russia kept, I don't know, Donsk or whatever the hell, and, uh, and, and both sides could walk away. And the West, in the form of the former prime minister of uh, Great Britain, stepped in and said, no, 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 no. We don't want peace. We want you to keep fighting. That's right. crazy. That's crazy, crazy what you just said. And it's crazy that it's not a huge news story. It really is crazy. We found this out. It was a Ukrainian newspaper that revealed this. And then an actual kind of Russian hawk, Fiona Hill, who worked for the Obama for Obama, she revealed um, in uh, recently that they were close to the deal. Now she didn't include the Boris Johnson mm. part because, of course, that would have been politically inconvenient. But that's that's anyone who follows this seriously knows about the Boris Johnson part. But of course, she couldn't thread the needle there because then she'd be showing not only were they close to a deal, but that the deal was undermined by the West. And so the out, so, so here comes here, com here comes the obvious question, Katie. Here comes the obvious question. You just said to us that the United States and um, Zelensky were, uh, pardon me, Russia and Zelensky, Putin and Zelensky were close to a deal. And somehow we put the kibosh on it. Obvious question. Why? Why would we, uh, Great Britain, the United States, France, whatever, uh, want this, to, this thing to continue? Well, one reason is, and we know this because uh, Lloyd Austin has said this, the goal is not to end the war. The goal is to weaken Russia. So this has geopolitical, perceived geopolitical value because the goal is to harm Russia, hurt Russia, bleed Russia, 
as opposed to uh, save lives, right? So if you if people actually cared about Ukrainian civilians, which they claim to, of course, they wouldn't want to prioritize harming Russia. They would prioritize ending the war. But they're happy to bleed Russians and they're happy to bleed Ukrainians. And I mean, it's incredibly sinister, especially for people who are claiming to be acting to save Ukrainian lives. They're just extending the bloodshed. And as we all know, all wars end in diplomacy and negotiation. The only question is how many people you're going to uh, have killed in, uh, before that date. And again, we know this because people have said this, you know, things ranging from regime change that Biden kind of floated to um, people consistently saying what they want to do is weaken Russia and take this opportunity as a chance to weaken Russia, degrade their military. Um, that's mm. really the the goal. And of course, the arms industry is is only too happy to, to be able to keep um, selling uh, arms. Yeah, didn't we just do a $9 billion deal yeah. where our weapons makers got an opportunity to make a, let me say the uh, legal term, a shitload of money by right. making by making term, sure yeah. that this war continues because it's right. profitable. It's profitable. Right. Yeah. And and by the way, aren't those the same guys who are in the pocket of the Senate and the U.S. Congress? Yes. Or they're they're in the pocket of the Senate or or would they be or the Senate and the U.S. Congress be in their pocket? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, yeah. Yeah. Basically, uh, they're feeding and them. And there's a revolving door, of course, which right. is another story. They're which feeding is them money. You have all these people who were um, active, you know, government officials, then they leave politics. They become, you know, they're on the board of Raytheon or uh, Lockheed Martin. And then they become, they either enter politics once again, or they just become media commentators. And it's not revealed that they're now sitting on the board of a major arms um uh, corporation. They're just the only thing that is relevant from their bio, according to the their the way they're introduced, of course, is they're having been in Homeland Security, but not the fact that they're on the board of a major arms uh, manufacturer. Is I don't think Putin's a good guy. I think Putin is a guy who has given all of Russia over to his buddies. And I think he's gotten corrupt, filthy rich in the process. Uh, I think it's hard to look at that and not see oodles of corruption. Sure. Um, at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm still left wondering, yeah, and by the way, the guy I just explained in Putin is a million other leaders all over the world, including people right. who have been leaders in our own country. So it, does that justify the United no, States, my country, your country, wanting to literally no. take them out, regime changes, no, you call it? No, because first of all, that's not really our role. And uh, if you just look at recent history, that never works out well. Mm. I mean, look at what happened in Iraq, uh, where yeah. we regime change. Regime change does not work well. Who would replace Putin? What kind of instability would follow? But also, that's not what apparently this war is about. This war is apparently about protecting Ukrainians. But again, uh, we know that that really isn't the priority, because if that were, then we'd be negotiating or we'd be pressuring um, Zelensky to negotiate. And we would have also the other thing is this this war really basically started in 2014 with a U.S. backed coup um, that overthrew the elected uh, Ukrainian leader. And it's since then just been um, mm -hmm. there have been many potential off ramps and there was the Minsk two agreements that would have negotiated a lot of this and settled a lot of this. And Zelensky, basically, he ran on on that, but then he ran as a peace candidate. But then once he got into power, he uh, I think probably because he's th threatened by extreme right wing neo-Nazi forces within his own country, 
who it's not that the majority of Ukrainians are neo-Nazis, but there is the Azov Battalion, which is incorporated into the Ukrainian army, which is made up of neo-Nazis. And um, so, so what's very... your, so hold on, I'm going to stop you for a minute because we've changed into the, my next question, um, which is about Ukraine. Describe the Ukraine's own culpability or innocentness, if there is yeah. such a word. Well, I think that Ukraine, it's a little uncomfortable to talk about it, but it, Ukraine really is in some ways a client state of the United States. I mean, it has a lot of support from the United States. And actually, the late Stephen Cohen, the historian, the Russia scholar, predicted that the United States was really going to have to have Zelensky's back as a peace president, um, as a peace leader, because if they didn't, then uh, the right wing would be able to to control him. Mm. And again, I don't think it's necessarily a, uh, about like what Zelensky's preferences are. It's just kind of almost like a law of physics. If you have this very strong, armed, powerful, disproportionately powerful based on numbers um, faction that uh, uses violence and you have them and then you don't have a counterforce like the United States uh, government helping defend uh, peace process, because they didn't want Zelensky to negotiate. They they threatened him. They they made open threat, threats to him. Huh. And they, when you did, say they, you're talking about the West. You're talking about the no, Britain? sorry, the 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 Azov Battalion people, oh. the people of the extreme, the, the neo Nazis. So so there is right so there is a you, there is a actual, and I've read about this, but I, I want to hear you describe it or confirm it or explain it to me. There is actually a Nazi faction, actual like neo Nazi faction inside the military of Ukraine. That's not to say the entire military is Nazi yeah. or the leadership or the government is Nazi, right. but there are there's a faction that exists there. Yeah. It's how do the they Azov. exist there? How, how are they accepted? Or do, do people just they're, look the other way? Yeah, I think they do look the other way. I mean, they're probably very good fighters because they're real fundamentalists and fanatics and they want to kill Russians. And these are people who don't want uh, Zelensky to negotiate. And what's interesting is if you look at the headlines from before um, this conflict or this iteration of the conflict before the invasion, the, the New York Times was constantly, you would call them neo-Nazis and Nazis, and now they're just called far right. I don't know if that means they had some sensitivity training. Maybe they read Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility or something, and now <laughs> they're no longer neo-Nazis. They're just far rightists. But you can see this in several publications, The Guardian, The New York Times, all these places that were n previously not afraid to call them Nazis and neo-Nazis are now using euphemisms for them. It does seem, just journalistically speaking, again, I, I, look, I, I don't have a dog in this fight, but when I listen to CNN, when I listen in particular to like MSNBC, even when I read the Times or the Washington Post, et cetera, I get a sense that they're not informing me but rather they are taking sides and trying to convince me of how great Zelensky is and how bad Putin is. That's not to say they may not be right, but it's obvious in yeah, their tone right. that that's exactly what they're doing. And that bothers me. I don't want right. to be taught something. Yeah, I, mean, I want to be shown something, right? Right. And we and another scary thing we saw with the media in terms of the bias is we actually saw the media basically begging for a no fly zone, which was mind boggling. It's like, do they understand what they're asking for? But we've seen that. I mean, there was this whole press conference. Ryan Grimm was at it. And it was just one question after another, basically pushing Biden to do more, to take more uh of a militaristic interventionist mm -hmm. uh, approach, literally asking for a no-fly zone. And then Ryan asked a question about whether or not the 
United States has pressured Zelensky at all to negotiate, and 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 Jen Psaki's like not really, basically. <laughs> I mean, they're not that impaired. We know basically that Zelensky's won't can't do anything without the United States. Okay, and again, it's really well, scary and it's really irresponsible. It seems well. Here's why. Here's why. It seems to me that when they do that. They're not journalists anymore. They're really PR flacks for the State Department and the Pentagon. And yeah, they're I, 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 yeah. I, do, I love my Pentagon and I love my State Department because if we were to be attacked, I want, I'm going to be behind them 100 percent, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not like some crazy peace nitnik, you know, who's saying, you know, there could never be another weapon made in this world or anything. However, I remember because I'm older than you are. When I lived in a United States where the media challenged the government's right, war decisions exactly. in places like Vietnam and said, what right. are we doing? What the hell are we doing? Why yeah, are we this fighting is this a little war? weird. It's like the opposite. They're pushing them to be more belligerent. Yes. I mean, it, was, it was a spectacle. To, it was kind of insane to behold. But yeah, watching that was was insane. Watching the Pentagon kind of be like, okay, guys, calm down. Calm down. Yeah. It's like yeah. the media. Yeah. Like the media is, is driving the narrative for what is looking like or could be the beginning of World War III. Yeah. What the hell yeah. are you doing? What are you, was this for ratings? I mean- and People are like kind of downplaying the fear of a potential nuclear war. Like maybe it wouldn't be that bad. Maybe we could win a nuclear war. It wouldn't kill everyone. I mean, really scary, insane discussions. Last time I checked, I think there's like uh, uh, 13,000 nuclear warheads in the world. And the one country in the world that has the most nuclear warheads is not the United States, it's Russia, then the United States, then China, mm. then France, then Great Britain, then India, down the line. Right. And it's funny because we should know this. I mean, if you're going to start Rachel Maddow and, uh, you know, Don Lemon or uh, whoever the hell, Anderson Cooper, all these people were pushing, you know, th this this narrative of that we need to be in war, at a, in a warlike state with Russia they should they should say to their viewers by the way if we were in a warlike state they got more nuclear bombs than we do yeah. because i just think right. it's part of the narrative but we don't hear that it either should be. it certainly should be yeah yeah i mean that, that's um let's talk about why putin felt the need to do this how how would you characterize his his reason for for doing this and does it match up with what he he makes it sound like he was about to be invaded yeah. What does he mean? Well, there were increasing troops on the border and there was a lot of shelling. Um, and so I think he was afraid of that. And I think that, you know, he did not use all of his manpower to uh, fight back the, the separatists. Um, hmm. uh, he did not use all of his. He still I mean, it's it, people have said like The New York Times even was surprised that by the way he's fighting this war. I mean, a lot fewer casualties civilian casualties then, and I'm not justifying his war. I mean, I think it's unjust, but it certainly was not unprovoked. There were several times that the United States could have given in, could have negotiated and granted some guarantees. I mean, like saying that that uh, they weren't going to accept Ukraine into NATO. And the United States also really kind of lied to Russia's, to the then Soviet Union's face. They promised that there wouldn't be more NATO expansion. And mm. they've of course had a lot of NATO expansion. A lot of people have compared this to kind of what it would be like in the United States if um, uh, Mexico surrounded us with um, a lot of weapons and started shelling us at, um, at the border. 
uh, or Canada had done something like that. And they were a satellite state of Russia or China. Yes, right, right. Sorry, right. That's the important, right. As yeah. if, if Russia were using, yes, if they were, um, if as if Russia, it would be like Russia arming Mexicans or Russia arming Canadians to be right. at the border, um, sh kind of shelling the United States. But again, How it's not even, it's not a question of like what you think of Putin. The fact, whether or not you like him or dislike him, if he's, in fact, even if he's as a terrible person, all the more reason you want to negotiate a peace. Mm -hmm. And like you said, we deal with, you know, you, you have to practice diplomacy with your, not just your friends, with, but with your enemies. And I don't actually think Russia and the United States need to be enemies. I think they, this is a kind of recent development that we've seen. Well, Putin is pissed because all of these countries like, you know, Latvia and others that were once part of his uh, system. And I think he does look at like, like his system. They think Gorbachev sold everything to the United yeah. States. They lost their empire. Right. And, and now they're, the, U, the West is kind of thumbing their nose at, uh, right. at his mother country, et cetera, et cetera. And I get that. I mean, you know, part of that is just ego and they want things to be the way they are. However, um, to, 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 to counter what he believes or what, a lot of Russians believe if these countries like Estonia and Latvia and even Ukraine to a certain extent decide on their own, we don't want to be, we don't have anything to do with Russia. We hated yeah. that thing. And, and we want to be French, you know, ready me, you know, we want to be, you know, English or we want to be American. So right. They could do it. And he should not get in their way. So how much of it is, is, is Russia trying to just win back people who don't want to be your friend? If they don't want to be I your mean, friend, the United let go. State, well, they agreed to certain things based on the condition that the, but they didn't get it in writing. That's the problem. Hmm. But if you look at the archives, it's very clear that the United States kept telling Russia that they wouldn't um, allow eastward expansion of, uh, of NATO. And uh, obviously, the United States, though, won't. It's it's pretty cynical because the United States has basically said behind closed doors to to Zelensky that they they are not going to admit him into uh, NATO, but they refuse to say that out loud because that would have actually been something that would have been very reassuring to Putin. So after doing Estonia, after doing Latvia, after doing after doing all of these countries yeah. that that border yeah. Russia, Putin's biggest fear was NATO was about to take uh, or include, which is take, yeah. NATO was about to include Ukraine. Right. Yeah. And, and NATO is not some peacenik organization. It's not like a kumbaya. You know, NATO destroyed Libya. Libya is a destroyed state. It has yeah. no state right now. It's an open air slave market, basically. Uh, also, you can look at what happened in Serbia. I mean, NATO has done some really horrific things and they're very belligerent. And that's what the, their whole purpose is. And so, some people say they only exist to justify their own existence, basically. Let, let me then ask you the stupid question that I think a lot of people out there would, would ask, because just people who look at this and they have jobs every day and they don't have time to study the uh, geopolitical ramifications of this. So NATO was created after World War II to counter Russia because right. they were a communist country and we feared communism taking over the world. Russia stopped being a communist country 20, 30 years ago or whatever the hell it was. And that should have ended NATO. So right. what, just, just a basic question. Why do we need NATO if Russia is now a capitalist country 
just like we are, right. which they are, we, by the way. We, Actually, right. hyper-capitalist, crony capitalism right. even. Right, Yeah. right. We don't need NATO anymore, and that's kind of part of the problem. We don't need NATO anymore, but it lets the, the West kind of act as a big bully, um, as they did in Libya. I mean, they were able to overthrow Gaddafi because of NATO. They wouldn't have been able to do it without that. Um, so huh. it's a very, it's a scary thing that NATO exists, honestly. How about China? What, uh, what, what's, what's their place in all of this? I read a lot that China and, uh, Putin have some kind of relationship or accord or that they've gotten even more friendly as a result of what happened in Ukraine because of China's own concerns about Taiwan. Is that true? I mean, I think that ironically, the United States is kind of pushing um, China and Russia closer together, which you'd think would be the last thing that they would want to have happen. But I think the United States is such a bully that they don't even think about their consequences and they just assume that might is right. And they assume they're so they have such a good PR war. I mean, they managed to make it look like China is the belligerent country when China hasn't done anything belligerent. I mean, the United States has done the provocative things. Hmm. But like Nancy Pelosi doing what she did, I mean, it's really absurd. Um, But I think the U.S. is just so used to having its way and it's so entitled um, that. But what what does that serve? If if and I agree with you, our foreign policy does seem sometimes seem like we we do bully the world. And we, we in particular lately have been very antagonistic. And that worries me. I got kids, you know, I got grandkids. I worry about a world where China, Russia, and the United States are at odds and on the brink of war. Because I think if China and Russia were to come together, I don't know. I'm not a military expert and I don't go around counting weapons, but I fear they could kick our ass. And I don't want that. Besides, I just don't want a war with those guys. I mean, why are we constantly taking this to the precipice? Because the arms industry is so, there's so much greed and so much power. And you combine that with the kind of jingoism and rah-rah, America first. Um, you know, it's so interesting. Like, you hear Biden talking about competition with China. Why is competition with China never like a high-speed railroad? Why does it always have to lead to, like, belligerence or bellicosity or threats or saber-rattling? Uh, it would be great if it actually was like, okay, we're going to invest in high-speed railroads the way China does. And why does the media... I hate using that word, but you know what I mean. Why does it seem like the general media, the corporate media, never stands up and asks these questions or these concerns that you and I are sharing? Why, why, why are, are they incapable? Do they? Because they're, I think, paid not to be capable or they're paid not to ask those questions. What does or that they mean? see what happens when people speak up. I mean, they also drink the Kool-Aid, right? And it's their self-censorship. And it's like you're in order to really succeed in corporate media, you have to make a lot of compromises and you have to turn a blind eye to things or else you won't be able to really rise the ranks. That's why Rachel Maddow went on for almost a full year criticizing Russia's supposed uh, election interference, but never once mentioned that we had just assigned a president to Venezuela. We, we yeah, literally right. took a guy named Guaido and say, yeah. you're now the president. And it's like, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. You, can, you can't, you, we can't put a president in another, or, 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 or that we completely destabilized Iraq for a lie. And right. we, we, we should be, that should be part of the context of First, everything yeah. we talk about to, to show that we, we, we are imperfect as well. That doesn't mean right. you don't love America. If you say, yeah. I wish no, my country hadn't America, done that. Want it. What? Right. If you, 
if you love America, you don't want them engaged in these wars. I heard that as a result of our uh, association with the Saudis, we have been partly responsible or our weapons have been partly responsible for the deaths of 50,000 children in Yemen over the last five years. Is that true? It is true. And there's like a lot of starvation. Children are starving. There's like record-breaking levels of cholera there. It's basically a humanitarian crisis. It's a siege. And Biden, what he did was he kind of rebranded it. He didn't really change the policy so much. He just says it's for that we give money, we give arms for defensive weapons as if like, as if uh, Saudi Arabia is defending itself from Yemen. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's basically just this change up in, in um, optics. So the Saudis are bombing the hell and killing uh, a lot of innocent people in Yemen. Yeah. They're doing it with our weapons, with our advisors, yeah. essentially with our military. And, you know, as a journalist, I I would want to stand up and do that story and then tell the American people, is this what you want done on your behalf? That's my job as a journalist. But I don't, I got to look at places like The Intercept to read this shit. You know, why? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's awful, but it doesn't, it's not convenient for the U.S. And then, you know, there's also access journalism, right? So if someone talks about this, then maybe the Biden administration won't grant them an interview, or maybe this person won't grant them an interview, or that person won't grant them an interview. That's another major problem with journalism. Going back to Zelensky, um, I, I read recently, and I can't remember whose book it was, may have been Anyway, that um, at one point during the COVID crisis, and this is what set both guys off, Russia finally came up with its own vaccine, which some people have said is not perfect, but it's still a vaccine. It's better than nothing. At the time, there was no vaccine in Ukraine. So Putin offered the vaccine practically for free to Zelensky, and Zelensky said, no, we don't want it. We don't want anything that's Russian. I mean, I didn't, a vac- I didn't a va- hear that, but if that's true, that's like the most self- like feeding self-indulgent, irresponsible thing to do. And that's one of the things that kind of started this whole feud between uh, these two guys. And it would not surprise me to read, and I did not, I'm, I'm just adding this partly as conjecture. It would not surprise me that he picked up the phone and said, hey, I, I, I'm about to have some. And they said, no, 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 no. We, do, we don't want you to take that vaccine. We'll have right. the you know, the Pfizer vaccine ready for you in just a couple of weeks or something. And, you know, but but gosh, it just, why, why, why? That's really disturbing. Yeah. Um, How do you think this thing's going to end up as we start to wrap this up? I don't know, honestly. That's scary. I hope that the United States, I don't think it will happen though, but it'd be nice for the sake of Russians and Ukrainians, not to mention the rest of Europe, who's going to be suffering through a cold winter. It would be great if things were actually, uh, negotiations were were encouraged. Zelensky has recently said that he won't negotiate, he'll negotiate with Russia with another president, which is kind of delusional, honestly, and is definitely adding fuel to the fire. Um, But I think the West and the United States really needs to just um, actually prioritize diplomacy and negotiation over extending a war. I worry about the global economy. I mean, I'm hearing stories that Europe is preparing for what could be a deadly winter where yeah. people literally will not be able to afford heating fuel and will die in their own homes of hypothermia because of, I don't know, the sanctions, the U.S. and now 
Putin is saying, oh, yeah, you're going to sanction me? Well, I'm going to limit my supply of oil right. and fuel, so you're not going to get it. And then, you know, Americans are going to be fine. Russians are probably going to be fine. It's Europe that's going to end up paying the price for this yeah. thing. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I mean, Russians are also paying the price for sanctions because sanctions never really harm the um, ordinary Russians, I'd say, because sanctions never really harm the governments. They just harm the people, which is why they're so... They are really a form of economic warfare, but they're not just economic warfare. I mean, they, Aaron Mate calls them murderous sanctions because they are that. People are cut off from getting medicine. They're cut off from humanitarian aid, um, things like insulin, um, operations. I mean, this really is, we should be always referring to sanctions as murderous sanctions because that's what they are. Final question. If this continues long enough, I've always seen this kind of thing happen historically. Again, I'm old enough to remember and seeing things like other Vietnams. So I know in Cuba, you know, the right. situation in Africa became their Vietnam for Castro, actually. Could this become, if it continues, Putin's Vietnam, where it eats him up as a result, like the Vietnam War did to yeah. both LBJ and Nixon? It could. Yeah. There's enough, I mean, there's criticism there, right? I mean, there's enough people in the country who are like, who are, I know, yes. I'm, I'm sure the coverage of it is exaggerated, but my, I would sense, and what do I know? But I would sense that there is actual pushback within, uh, you know, in, inside Moscow and in the politic, et cetera, et cetera. There is. I think there's, you know, Russians are not a monolith. It's a huge country. Um, I think there's some people who are supportive and there's some people who aren't. There's some people who are running away because they don't want to fight. So we'll have to see. Katie, talk, Katie talks about this on her podcast. It's called the Katie Halper Show. The Katie yeah. Halper Show. It's, a, it's also a YouTube show at youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Great. And and you then you're live. also on uh, Useful Idiots as your- Yeah, Useful Idiots, which is youtube.com slash Useful Idiots. And you can get bonus content at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show and um, usefulidiots.substack.com. And you can find us wherever you find your podcast also. And by the way, here's something that's really important. If you like this conversation and you don't think you're going to get a conversation like this in most places, because by the way, you're not, you know, do, do me a favor, do Katie a favor- Make sure you not only, you know, pass it on to somebody else, but review it. For some reason, oh, yeah. it's a big deal in the podcast yeah, world. Yeah, review, yes. Right, just, just give us a four, a five, you know, whatever you think yeah. we're, we're worthy of. Sentences. I get a five, she gets a four. Just kidding. Yeah, um, right. Other way around. <laughs> but it's really important for us that you just show, I'm a listener. I like what I heard. Yeah. Because uh, it kind of feeds the way that we're able to continue uh, doing this. And we think these kinds of conversations are uh, important. Katie's show again is the Katie Halper show. This show that you're listening to is called Rick Sanchez News. Uh, we're a part of Agua Media. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you also happen to be watching us on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. As we like to say, dale adelante y vamos con todo. Agua. 